For an average female, the odds of being murdered are 2.6 per 100,000. The odds of being murdered as a female sex worker, 100 times that at a rate of 204 per 100,000. Such was the fate of the women who were caught in the crosshairs of the Long Island serial killer. I'm Marina, with me I have my best friend Laura, and this is Grim. even like my statistics no no those are still too high yeah for my liking yeah they're bad that is crazy yeah it's a lot higher yeah it's scary um first of all thankfully we're recording this week and not last week because i had horrific laryngitis Mm. and it's much better but if i sound a little funky it's because i'm allergic to the world is trying to kill me right now (laughs) on the next episode of grim and the (laughs) the murderer is ragweed (laughs) dun 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 Yeah. So, um, yeah, I'm going to do my best to uh, get through this and not like cough and sneeze all over the microphone. Okay. Thank you. Wonderful. Pray for me. Yeah. (laughs) First up though, we have our Patreon shout outs. And before we get into those, I just want to say we have been feeling the love. Um, we adore each and every one of you and we've been getting people messaging us on Insta, recommending us on Facebook, sending us case suggestions, subscribing to our Patreon, leaving us reviews, jumping up and down in my driveway. I'm looking at you, Rachel. (laughs) You guys are all amazing. You have made us so excited and honestly, like Honestly, I'm 100% honest on this. It keeps us going. It does. Because there are times where we sit down to research after like a long day of work or like listening to our screaming toddlers, some of us. um, (laughs) And I'm just like, I can't do it. And then we see a review and I'm like, I got it. I got to do it for our people. Yeah. I got to do it for the gremlins. Okay. So Patreon shout outs. And again, we have a ton. Like you guys are the best. Yeah. Okay. So first up, we have Katie H. Katie H. Woo. We love you. Thank you, Katie. Thank you. Thank you. Next up, we have Whitney S. Whitney, Whitney we, love, we you. love you, girl. Woo. Thank you. Next up, we have Andres T. Andres, we, woo, love, we you. love you. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And I hope we said your name right. We tried. We Googled it to make sure. And I confirmed it can't be Anders. No. But no. if it is, that's cool, too. I think it's Andres. 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 Oh, that was so, kind of French. I don't know. Andres. I don't know. If it's, yeah. Okay. Andres. We'll just say an we extra. We love you. An extra shout out in case we yes. ruined your name. Yes. I think we did good. I think I did good. <laughs> we Anyways. did. We did good. <laughs> I done real good. <laughs> Next up, we have Heather C. We, we love, love you, Heather. Heather. Thank you. you. Uh, Crystal F. Woo. Crystal. Crystal, Woo. we love we you, love girl. You. Rochelle. Rochelle. We Rochelle. love you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Crystal W. Crystal. Woo. Crystal, Again. thank you. Yay. Two crystals. Two Crystal crystals. F and Crystal W. And Megan J. We love Woo, you, Megan. Megan. Woo. Woo. She's, she jumped right into the Discord. We love it. We're we, friends already. Yep, yeah, we love it. Yep. So thank you guys again. Uh, We cannot thank you enough for the support. And we have one more bit of housekeeping information. Mm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, Half of Grimm is pregnant. (laughs) And I'm going to give you a hint that it is, my God, it's not me. It's not me. She's already been there, done that. Been there, done that, (laughs) not doing it again. Nope, it me. Laura pregnant. 
Woo! Got a little baby gremlin coming our way. Like stat. Like soon. Yeah. yeah. So like unlike me who told everyone the moment it was acceptable <laughs> to tell anybody who would listen that I was pregnant, Laura has kept this under her tube for quite some time now. <laughs> for you brought about, that back. Yeah. For about what? 37 weeks? Yeah. Almost exactly. Mm-hmm. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So um, our plan right now is to release the uh, second part of the Long Island serial killer, which will be mid-September. Which, spoiler alert, this is part one. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, I did I did include that in my next part. But, okay. yes, there's two parts to this episode. Um, that will be our last, quote-unquote, regular episode. Mm-hmm. And then Grimm is going on a type of maternity leave, <laughs> yep. if you will, um, at which point Laura will take the time that she needs to, uh, you don't know, like adjust to life with a newborn. <laughs> It'll be fine. It's fine. Everything's fine. Everything's fine. Like it's going to be fine. Um, <laughs> and get no sleep. It's fine. It's like fine. it's fine though. It's Trust fine. me, you don't want me writing cases no, at that point. No, no, no. Um, so I have the grand idea of continuing to provide to the best of my ability, some content mm-hmm. um, with some possible, you know, guest appearances mm-hmm. from, mm-hmm. you know, some people that you guys might already know and love, maybe some new friends, mm-hmm. new faces. Uh, we'll see how that goes. But but if but if they're funnier and better than I am, please please don't tell me that. Um, just just keep it to yourself, okay? I don't want to know. Yeah. So the road to hell uh, is paved with good intentions. So we'll just we'll just say that there will be no episodes for um, Laura's maternity leave. And then if and then if I pull it right. off, then it's just a bonus. Exactly. But for our Patreons, we will still have yes. P bonies that again Laura probably will not be a part of, but. Um, I will have um, someone who mm-hmm. is funny, but not as funny as Laura stand in <laughs> for for that. I, I think I have laws protecting me or something about that. You can't replace me, you know. Mm. So was it in the contract? Mm, it's FMLA. Do I get that through <laughs> through the podcast? <laughs> I'm just kidding. I don't remember putting that in the LLC <laughs> agreement, bitch. <laughs> So anyways, congratulations, Laura. Thank you. And um, you're getting a much needed break. And I know you guys are going to be super disappointed if you don't get all the content that you love, because I know that people are already sad that we don't do it weekly. I know. Um, But I need to not be the next episode of Grimm. So, you know, there just might be some breaks and pauses, but we will be back to our regularly scheduled programming before you know it. And if you need any great uh, podcast suggestions in the meantime, just reach out or join us on Discord because Mm -hmm. all of our Discord gremlins can give you some great suggestions. Absolutely. Absolutely. And now on to the show. (laughs) Um, so for this episode, I relied heavily and actually for this part one episode, almost exclusively on, um, the book Lost Girls, the Mm. unsolved American mystery of the Gilgo Beach serial killer murders by Robert Kolker. Mm. Uh, It's very well written and it's told in a way that kept my attention and kept it interesting. Love that. And as I mentioned, we're talking about the Long Island serial killer. That will be a two-parter. Unlike Laura, I'll give you the warning up front. <laughs> um, we're going to start by talking about the girls who are definitively related in this case. And then we'll mm-hmm. also cover other information. And anyone following the case will know there's been big news recently. And we'll obviously discuss that as well. And now I've known you were going to pick up this case basically since it broke. Right. And so I have avoided everything so if i ask very very dumb questions it's half pregnancy brain and half that i am intentionally i have not looked at anything so i'm super excited because obviously there's a lot of news yeah uh, and i want to know about it Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Um, I just have been burying my head in the sand. And I heard it one night on the TV. They were talking about it and my husband was listening and I was like, what did they just say about her? He goes, I don't know. I wasn't listening. I'm like, oh, <laughs> what good What good are you? Where are your notes? Yes. <laughs> Take notes for me, please. Okay. So let's start at the beginning here and we're going to talk about the first victim, potentially, Maureen Brainerd Barnes. Hmm. Maureen was born June 14th, 1982 in New London, Connecticut to Marie Ducharme and Robert Senecal. Maureen was raised primarily by her mother. Maureen's father worked in lumber and as a mechanic, and he only stayed with them from time to time. So providing for the family rested on Marie's shoulders. Mm. Grim fact, her father, Robert, died on her 21st birthday. He was out for a walk when he tripped and drowned in a (gasps) shallow puddle of water near where he fell. How unfair is that? Yeah. I, Are you kidding there me? There had to be like drugs or alcohol involved, I would think. Unless it just knocked Unless him like, out knocked and he asphyxi- out. Right, asphyxiated or drowned, drowned yeah. right? Wow. Yeah, that's that. I found that to be quite grim. Awful. Yeah. Yeah. Marie was a hard worker. She walked two miles to her job every day to clean rooms at a motel off of the highway because oh the gosh. family car almost never started. Ugh. She moved up in the world when she became one of the first slot attendants at Mohegan Sun Casino. Huh. With her increased earnings, she was able to afford a tan Ford Taurus and drove to a second job cleaning offices. This meant that Maureen and her younger siblings, Missy and Will, were on their own most of the time. Mm -hmm. Marie would buy the kids frozen meals for the week and the siblings would take care of one another. If they were those TV dinners with the penguin on them, they were living large. (laughs) Remember those? I do. So good. Yep. They probably actually were disgusting, but like in my brain, they were just magical. Those were the ones with like the mac and cheese and Mm -hmm. the nugs. Right. Yes. And yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. They were good, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> they were good as a child. Yeah. If we had them now, we'd be like, this is prison food. That being said, like Dunkaroos and that kind of thing, like those are still great. And so, they, they came back. Yeah. Yeah. So you never know. Maureen's siblings were into sports, but Maureen was more introverted. She liked to journal about her dreams and read books like the Book of Revelations and the Da Vinci Code. Great book, actually. It is a great yeah. book. She questioned, is heaven a physical place or a state of mind? Oh. Hashtag deep. Yeah, I'll say. School was easy for Maureen, but she preferred to spend her time reading and learning on her own than in a structured setting until she hit puberty. Maureen developed early and she basked in the male attention that she oh. received because of it. Maureen went to Robert E. Fitch High School in Groton, and every time she entered a room, she made sure that everyone knew. But jealous girls began picking fights with her, as they do in Mm -hmm. high school. So Maureen began staying home from school. She fought with her mother about it, but it ultimately wouldn't matter. Maureen dropped out when she found out she was pregnant at 16 (gasps) years old. Oh, jeez. Before finding out she was pregnant with his child, Maureen had been dating Jason Brainerd Barnes. The two teens were in love, and with a baby on the way, Jason proposed. The two were married at a courthouse in 1999, and Maureen gave birth to their daughter, Nicolette, and they all moved in with Jason's grandparents in Pawtucket until Jason Mm. joined the army, which took the family to the south for two years before they made their way back to Connecticut. And that's where things fell apart. Oh, no. The two didn't formally divorce, but they decided to split, and Nicolette would stay with Jason and Mystic the majority of the time because the schools were better. Maureen's family had said Mystic was home to the, quote, stuck up rich people. I actually was wondering if the family, like when you first started telling us, was coming from any means because Brainerd is a, a name in Connecticut. We have That's Brainerd an airport. airport. Yeah. yeah. 
Um, and then Barnes too, at least in, oh. um, in Southington, I think is the Barnes museum. And like, there's, I actually don't know the whole history, so I won't try to tell it to you, but that's yeah. a, another big name. So I was wondering like the fact that there's those something in names, Hartford too, right? With I think, name? I think so. Um, but either way, both of those are big names. So I was wondering if there was like money or big history involved. Yeah. So, I don't know. I don't know. Um, but as a side note, I love mystic. Mm-hmm. But they're not wrong about the stuck-up rich people. <laughs> There's a lot of that. In yeah. Less than yeah. you oh, think. Yes. Like, if you aren't from here and you see the stereotypes, you think it's everywhere and it's really not. It's no. not. It's most of the state is not like that. It's basically like the shoreline yeah. where all the people with money stay. Yeah, near New York. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, not not near Hartford. No, not no. near Hartford. No. Maureen moved in with her sister in a low-income development in Groton and failed to hold down a job during this time. Her best job was a car dealer at Foxwoods Casino, but she got fired for calling in sick too often. Mm. She tried pizza delivery and working as a cashier at ShopRite, but those jobs just didn't do it for her. She preferred to leave Nicolette with her sister, Missy, and just go out until Missy would confront Maureen about shirking her maternal responsibilities, and then Maureen would feel guilty. Oh, so she just, she wasn't going to work. She just... No, no, she was just going out. Oh, I mean, I can understand that. Yeah, yeah, no, that's that's the way to do it. You just leave your kids home and just go out. That's my and plan. And not work. And right? yeah, it's great. Okay. okay, good. By 2003, the situation became strained. Maureen was a 21-year-old with a four-year-old daughter, no steady employment, and no place of her own. Maureen knew she wanted to make a better life for herself and Nicolette. It was around this time that Maureen was seeing a man named Steve who ran a pawn shop in Norwich. Steve was a dream boyfriend. No, not at all. Oh, he I believed you. <laughs> nope. <laughs> he felt Maureen was like a child and didn't want to spend time with any of Maureen's friends or family. Oh. Bye, Steve. You suck. <laughs> <laughs> Bye. <laughs> to escape her boyfriend, which is the hallmark of a good relationship, uh-huh. right? Maureen would hang out with her friend Jay, and they would mess around on Jay's computers and write raps together. Because oh. Maureen had dreams. She wanted to be the next Lil' Kim. Oh. But she wasn't getting anywhere fast. She decided her best way to get into the rap scene was by modeling. She had a friend take some photos of her in different dresses, and she posted her portfolio to modelmayhem.com. Oh, that sounds reputable. It did, yeah. It doesn't, sounds (laughs) like there's got to be something better, right? Yeah. The modeling promotions turned into a slurry of emails for nude modeling and escorting. Oh, I bet. And that was it, because Maureen was too intrigued by the amount of money she could earn. Yep. And her career as an escort began. She started by posting an ad on the Eastern Connecticut Adult Services page of Craigslist using her mother's name, Marie. She immediately received responses and asked her friend Jay to come with her on her calls. And to their credit, they set up a procedure for Maureen's safety. When Maureen was with a John, Jay would call her five minutes after she went into the house. If Maureen answered and said everything's fine, that meant she'd been paid and she'd be out within the hour $100 richer. The money was good, but it wasn't all that Maureen had hoped for, so she upgraded and rented a room at Foxwoods to work her business. It was there that she met another sex worker who would introduce her to the Manhattan escorting scene, where the real money was. I was actually thinking it was unfortunate with the modeling when she initially wanted to do that, that she didn't go to New York. I'm sure there's also seedy things there, but there's so much possibility in New York. Um, It's just a shame, but... That's probably where Model Mayhem's headquarters are. Uh, Yeah, (laughs) allegedly. Yeah. Her friend told her if she posted a Craigslist ad and rented a room in Manhattan, she could make close to $1,000 a night. I can see that being appealing. Right. I mean, come on. That sounds pretty good to me. So that's where she went. 
Maureen took trips to the city, lying to Steve about where she was, leaving Nicolette with her sister if she had her at the time. Maureen was making good money, Mm -hmm. but it wasn't easy. She She had to meet strangers and have all these interactions, and it was wearing on her. She posted on her MySpace page <laughs> on July 5th, 2004, having serial killer dreams again. Love is hemorrhaging in my head, fading away with every beat. Maybe all it takes to keep alive is smoking it to death. That is something you would write on MySpace. So it is. It tracks. And there's like Snow Patrol playing in the background. Naturally. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And you had to code it yourself. I was going to say one step up from GeoCities. <laughs> But for good or for bad, the New York trips came to a halt when Maureen found out she was pregnant with Steve's baby. She always used condoms as an escort, so she knew it was his. Mm -hmm. And their son, Dylan, was born in 2006. Steve was a devoted, loving father, and Maureen and Steve's relationship was better for a time. But it only took a year for it to fall apart again. Mm. Maureen left with Dylan, but she had nothing at that time and wasn't working. So Steve continued to pay all of her bills, which that's also a sweet gig. Yeah. She got a job at a telemarketing company, but was later laid off because the work was only seasonal. So Maureen returned to what she knew best and began setting up massage appointments. Oh, boy. Her friend Sarah would drive her to the appointments and Maureen would throw her $50. If Sarah had to wait the full hour for Maureen, she'd give her $100, which... I would drive somebody to an appointment for $50. Yeah, I was going to say, she must have been making good money if she's given her that. Yep. Maureen wanted to go back to the city, and after her friend Sarah got a taste of the money, she agreed to go with her. Maureen basically said to Sarah, listen, you like to have sex. Why not get paid for it? You know, with that kind of logic. The logic is there. Yeah. Even with overhead, Maureen told Sarah she could make $1,000 to $2,000 a day. Maureen explained the rules to Sarah. Follow your instincts. If it doesn't feel right, don't do it. She said some Johns were shitty and no amount of money could save your life. Maureen said she also viewed all calls suspiciously and she always stayed in Manhattan. She stayed away from Queens, Brooklyn, Staten Island. Maureen also told Sarah to always have security with her. Mm. They didn't have to be in the room, but at least on the block so that they could check in and make sure all was well and the money was paid. Now, her kids were with her at this point, both Nicolette and Dylan? with her in that she still had some custody of them yes but like um, in manhattan no with her oh no 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 okay she would go and like rent a room in manhattan oh okay got it yeah and leave the kids probably with the sister or yep or their father yep yep now if only maureen had taken her own advice oh no but we'll get to that unfortunately for maureen sarah turned out to be quite popular in the city and she was annoyed Maureen demanded a 20% commission from Sarah for getting her set up, uh, but Sarah flipped out. The next week, Sarah ended up going to New York without Maureen, feeling empowered after having seen how it all worked. So they were sort of having like a spat. Yeah. But the next week on Friday, July 6th, 2007, Sarah and Maureen were back together in the city and all was forgiven because teamwork makes the dream work. (laughs) Yes. The girls met at Penn Station with Maureen's roommate, Brett. Brett was the chaperone, and although he was friends with Maureen's baby daddy, who probably didn't know about her activities... I would think not. He needed her to make the quick cash, because if they didn't make $1,100 over the weekend, they were all getting evicted on July 10th. Oh, geez. When they were due in court. So she had four days to get this done for them. 
The girls posted ads of themselves on Craigslist, but the ads were flagged and removed. I was wondering, like, I didn't think you could actually post those things on Craigslist. Well, they were flagged and removed by another person that they had previously been using for their business, who they figured out they could do it on their own. Because oh, apparently, apparently okay. you hire someone and they refresh your your ads. They like keep posting them for you oh. so that they stay at the top of the list and then they get paid for that. So this guy figured out that they were posting ads themselves and he was pissed. So he was flagging oh. all of them for Craigslist Damn. and they were getting removed. It's a whole ass business. It is a whole ass Liter- business. Literally an still ass is. business. It is probably. an ass business. Yeah. Yes. Okay. I don't mm-hmm. know if it's still a thing like craigslist i can't say i've looked so <laughs> it's gotta be like it, there's gotta be an app for that now right i, I would, mean i don't i would think so there's gotta be an app yeah. for that yeah um so this person was being spiteful flagging everything that popped up mm-hmm. so they were not getting calls coming oh. through and they were super annoyed with the few calls that they managed to sneak through on friday saturday and sunday maureen had only made seven hundred dollars uh-oh When Monday came around and the girls were supposed to return to Connecticut, Maureen wanted to stay an extra day. She figured if she could work Monday night, she could earn the extra money she needed to keep her apartment and wire it to Brett before court on Tuesday. Sarah said she was going to stay with her and she went to tell the boys that they weren't needed anymore. They were like, that's not safe. You guys Mm -hmm. are coming with us. So Sarah went back to tell Maureen that and she's like, we have to leave. Mm -hmm. Maureen's like, nope, that's cool. I'm going to stay. So Sarah goes back to the boys again. She's like, no, no, we're going to stay. Like, it's going to be okay. And the guys like flipped out. They were like, this is not safe. You're not staying. Absolutely not. And it was at that moment that Sarah realized that she needed to take Maureen's own advice and follow her instincts. So she went back to Maureen and she said, let's go. We're not staying here. Uh And Maureen stayed. No, I knew you were going to say that. And it's always like, I mean, it would have been bad enough if whatever you're going to tell me happened on, you know, the Saturday or whatever Mm -hmm. on the weekend. It's always that extra night, that extra thing. Mm -hmm. If I had just not done that one thing. Yep. The butterfly effect. Oh, man. Yeah. Maureen said she would keep the hotel room and she would see Sarah on Wednesday Mm. night. Maureen called Sarah less than an hour later, but Sarah didn't answer. That night around 1130, Maureen called her sister asking if she'd pick her up at Penn Station. Her sister said no, and Maureen said she had enough money to take the train. Sarah also received a call that night, but it wasn't from Maureen. A friend told her that Maureen had been robbed for five grand, which was surprising to Sarah because Maureen didn't have that kind of cash on her when she left. Right. She called Maureen to check on her, but she didn't pick up. So she left her a voicemail. Maureen's sister tried to call on Tuesday. No answer. Wednesday, straight to voicemail. Oh, no. Incredibly concerned, Maureen's family reported her missing to Norwich police. Missy also took matters into her own hands and went to Manhattan looking for clues as to where Maureen could have gone. Mm -hmm. Unlike the police, Missy was not dismissive of Maureen's absence given her status as an escort because Missy knew Maureen wouldn't leave her kids. Right. She looked for Maureen on adult websites and looked for any clues in her email, coming up with nothing. Did they try to go... Because Sarah knew the... um hotel room information right right? did they try they must have tried to they must have gone there yeah i don't she probably didn't check out but yeah yikes but she also didn't she she didn't pack a bag i don't think like you know maybe maybe i don't know but just uh, yeah yeah i I would assume all her stuff was still in the hotel room or maybe they couldn't even get in because she wasn't on you know right sarah wasn't on the on the list or whatever yeah yeah Hmm. to the extent they searched her hotel room which is unknown 
like they did nothing, not find anything. I say nothing came out of it. I, I always think that when we like ask questions, when we're like, like, did they do this? Obviously, like, if something came out of it, right, it would have been included. Would know. Yeah, that's okay, true. Fair. Thank you. I feel better about that now. Yeah. yeah. Wish you had researched harder, but <laughs> other than that, okay. As part of the investigation, the police obtained Maureen's phone records. On that Friday that Sarah and Maureen had gotten to New York City, which was July 6, 2007, Maureen began interacting with a burner phone. For the next three days, Maureen called and texted with this person 16 times. Huh. Maureen's phone was last used on July 9, 2007 in Midtown Manhattan near the 59th Street Bridge. Maureen's phone was then silent for the next three days until two outbound calls to check her voicemail were made on July 12th. Oh near the Long Island Expressway. Oh. It pinged off a tower on Fire Island near Long Island. Police sent out helicopters and cadaver dogs, but didn't find anything. I completely forgot the name of this case. I was like the Connecticut serial killer. <laughs> like, I completely forgot. You were like, Long Island? Yeah. What? <laughs> Literally. I was like, oh my God, all the way there? <laughs> I was very, very into this. I'm, I'm all the way on the other side of the state in Norwich. Okay. She, yes, yeah, she's from Norwich. Yeah, I'm... I'm I'm up to speed now. We're in New York. I got it. <laughs> Her sister Missy held out hope that Maureen could still be alive, mm. but Missy and Maureen's brother Will died in the summer of 2009, and when Maureen didn't show for the funeral, yeah. Missy knew that she was gone. Of course, yeah. And she wouldn't be the last. Almost 2 years to the day, another woman would go missing. Melissa Mary Bartholomew was born on April 14th, 1985 to Lynn Bartholomew. And Mark, last name unknown. Oh, geez. So wait, that's all we know about Maureen? Yes, right now. <sighs> there will be more information. I, I figured, but I didn't. I was not expecting that to end so quickly. TBD. <sighs> yes, I'm giving a rundown of each yeah. of the victims. Okay, yes. sorry. Mm -hmm. And there will be more information, too, when I talk about the recent developments. I figured. I just yes. wasn't ready. So okay. sorry. Thank all right, you. so we're moving on, yeah. Laura. All right. The I'm, program. I'm here. Yeah. <laughs> what state are we in? Great question. I would love to tell you. I'm like skimming the first pair. I don't know what state we're in yet. It's okay. It's it's not. I... New York. We're still in New York. Oh, okay. Buffalo. Buffalo. Oh, but we're in Buffalo, New York. Mm -hmm. Okay. We've moved. All right. Transitioned. I'm ready. So Lynn was only 16. Lynn is Melissa's mother because I know we just digressed a little yep. bit. Yep. Lynn was only 16 at the time she conceived Melissa and Lynn refused to go to a special school during her pregnancy. She wanted to graduate like the rest of her friends. And six weeks after giving birth to Melissa, she returned to school. Oh, my God. And six weeks after that, she got a job washing dishes at a nursing home, a job that she would hold for the next 25 years. Uh, yeah, so don't judge me when after I give birth, I can't even do an episode of Grimm. Um, I realize there are people who do a lot more. So One of my old bosses, his mom gave birth to him and like a week later went back to waitressing. And I'm like, what? I couldn't sit down for seven weeks. So yeah. I don't, oh my God. I don't know. Ugh. God bless those people. Back to the murder, please. Mm -hmm. Linda and Elmer, Melissa's maternal grandparents, helped with her child care. Melissa was raised mostly in their colonial home in Kensington Bailey, a neighborhood in Buffalo, New York. Hmm. The neighborhood was initially nice, but as businesses closed and employment became scarce in Buffalo, the crime mm. rates rose and people began fleeing the area. With Lynn busy working, Melissa was on her own and kept questionable company. She hung out with other kids whose parents were laid off from union jobs, and the kids she hung out with weren't interested in finishing school. Oh. Some were in gangs. But Melissa was smart in school, adorable and popular, taking after her mother. 
She was feisty and Lynn taught her to never hit first, which is a valuable lesson. That's I like how that's phrased. <laughs> yes. Mm-hmm. Yep. Never hit first. Melissa spent her childhood bouncing back and forth from her grandparents' home. When Melissa was only three, her and Lynn moved in to Lynn's boyfriend's apartment in South Buffalo. A year later, Lynn came home from work to find him in bed with another woman, sending her back to Elmer and Linda's house. A few years later, Lynn met Andre Funderburg and gave Melissa a little sister, nine years her junior. They were a happy little family until oh. Andre cheated on Lynn. Oh, my gosh. And she moved back in with Elmer and Linda, now with another baby in the house. Mm-hmm. By her early teens, Melissa had strayed from her mother's angelic ways and was staying out late and skipping school. Mm. Lynn had told her so many times about how young she was when she was pregnant with Melissa, so she was trying to get the message to stick. Mm -hmm. But Lynn still worried about Melissa with her boyfriends. Melissa brought home a boy named Jordan who was into dealing drugs and into things Lynn wanted to keep Melissa away from. She knew Melissa was headed down the wrong path, now uninterested in finishing school, which made Lynn so sad after how hard she worked to graduate with a newborn. Seriously. In a last-ditch effort to get Melissa's life on track, Lynn called Melissa's dad, Mark, who had just settled down in Dallas, Texas with his wife. Mark agreed to take his daughter, and Melissa left New York. She complained the whole time and picked fights with her stepmother. Mm -hmm. She lasted there two and a half years before the final straw in which she stole Mark's work van and drove it around Mm. without a license. She got pulled over and got away with community service while Mark got a fine and then bid adieu to his daughter. Yeah. And it's unfortunate because I was thinking that that's probably a better place for her to be than New York. Although, I mean, it's not New York City, but still. Um, But doesn't sound like it mattered what location. Nope. Melissa moved back to Buffalo, but things had changed. Her grandparents had moved from Kensington Bailey into a suburb in Buffalo that was basically all farmland, and Melissa was bored. Yep. In her senior year of high school, to her mother's chagrin, Melissa announced she was moving out. She got an apartment with a roommate, a job at a pizzeria, and re-enrolled in the high school near Kensington Bailey. Melissa graduated high school and enrolled in beauty oh. school, where she worked her butt off, never missing classes, and she graduated proudly. What? Mm-hmm. I mean, fantastic. Yeah. Didn't think that's where that was going. I know. Great. She just, she was like, I'm moving out and completely I'm getting my, my life yeah. together. Okay, but thanks. That's fine. Yeah. Great. Once trained, however, the only job available was Supercuts. Yeah, well. She worked there for a while, but she just wasn't challenged in her job. Yeah. She ended up getting back together with her ex-boyfriend, Jordan. And after the couple took two trips to New York City, they decided to move there. Melissa told her mother that a man had already offered her a job cutting hair. To the extent that was true, it didn't last long, and Melissa found a much more lucrative career in the city. Melissa went by Chloe working as an escort. She worked closely with her friend, Critzia Lugo, who she met working on the streets. Melissa and Critzia would work starting at 3 a.m. when Laura is also up. I was going to say, yeah, (laughs) I I have been asleep for a while, but (laughs) yeah. Yep. When all the strip clubs and theaters were closing down, Melissa took risks in her line of business and she went with any John who was willing to rent a room. So not quite as careful as Maureen. No. Critzia was afraid she wouldn't last a year, but Melissa managed to safely escort for three years. That's a lot. Like that's impressive if you're taking that many risks right it's already a very dangerous as we just heard yes very dangerous profession yeah it's crazy it helped that her and Kritzia had pimps mel and blaze who ensured that no one messed with them Mm. melissa would go home to see her family at least once a year she told them that the hair salon she worked at closed but she got a job dancing at a nightclub she said she only ever took her top off and that she was safe never working alone oh 
Melissa and Critzia learned what jobs were better than others, and they made it a game to turn around calls as quickly as possible. They may have also scammed a few Johns here and there. Critzia spent some time in jail, but Melissa was only officially arrested once in 2008 for attempted prostitution. Wow. She pleaded guilty and got five days of community service. Both Melissa and Critzia had experiences where cops had asked for a blowjob before he would let them go, <gasps> which apparently it's not uncommon for sex workers to be harassed by the police. Oh, that's that's what's so... I mean, not to get on this soapbox because we have a whole case to get through, but right. that's what's just so unfortunate is you lose all of the protection right. of like a normal job because of the just line of business. Exactly. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Ugh. Yep. By 2008, the glamour of the city had worn off and Melissa was having a rough go with her pimp blaze against Critzia's advice. Uh, Melissa started taking calls without him and she decided she wasn't going to give him all her money. She felt like, why should she do that if he wasn't even going to protect her? That got her jumped by a group of women who were doing Blaze's dirty work because he was pissed. Wow. But Melissa was tired of walking the streets, so she decided to turn to Craigslist. Melissa tried to get Critzia to join her new methodology, but Critzia wanted the ability to judge a John in person before Mm. she went along with him. Mm -hmm. Melissa made good money on her own and was able to spoil everyone in Buffalo at Christmas time with iPod touches. Jeez. Remember those? Yes. <laughs> Before she went back to the city, her stepdad tried to convince her to come home. He said his sister-in-law ran a cosmetology school and he could get her a job. Oh. Melissa told him not yet, but soon. Oh, man. Six months later and Melissa was still at it. If only she had thrown in the towel. Same thing if you had just, mm-hmm. if Maureen had just gone home yep. instead of staying in the city. And she was over it. Like she was already over it yep. at that point. So yep. like Ugh. her stepdad was offering her a way mm. out and she did not take it. Mm-mm. On July 3rd, 2009, Melissa was contacted by a burner phone for the first time. The same burner phone that contacted her on July 6th, mm. July 9th, and July 10th. On July 11th, Melissa went to her bank and deposited $1,000 she had earned from the night before. She solidified the plans that she had for her little sister to visit her in the city. Oh, man. She spoke to Blaze, and she told him that she had a John lined up on Long Island, and he was going to pay her $1,000 for the date. She traveled from Midtown Manhattan to Massapequa, which was the final location as of July 11th, 2009 at 1.43 a.m., that same day, Melissa's phone made a call to her voicemail in Freeport. Her voicemail was checked two more times in Babylon on July 11th and 12th. That's strange. Maybe it was more common to check your voicemail like that, but I find it strange that they both were checking their voicemail before they before bad things happened to them. Or was it after bad that's, things happened? That's what to I mean. Them? Like it's like that's why it's standing out to me because it mm-hmm. seems like a strange time to be like, I should check my voicemail. Right. Okay. Yep. All right. When Melissa didn't answer her calls and texts, her parents called off Melissa's sister's trip and began calling local hospitals looking for their daughter. Mm. They tried to file a missing persons report, but the police said there was no indication she was missing and held them off for three days. That's so frustrating. They finally filed a report 10 days later. So frustrating. What is that? What What's that thing? Uh, is it um, Is it 48 hours? 480 hours, I oh, think. Oh, yeah. okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, according yeah. to the police here. Right. Yeah. Gotcha. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's the statistic for... That was a really hard word to say. <laughs> That's the statistic for sex workers, right? It's like normal people have 48 hours, but yeah. sex workers, it's 480. A oh, hundred times that. That makes so my skin, fucked up. Ugh, yeah. That makes my it's blood boil. Up. Yep. 
The phone records for Melissa's phone were pulled as part of the investigation. While Melissa's phone was located in Midtown Manhattan, the cell phone was used to make taunting calls to some of Melissa's family members on July 17th, July 23rd, August 5th, 19th, and 26th. I don't like that. Amanda, Melissa's 15-year-old sister, received eight calls total. The man on the other end asked if she knew what Melissa did for a living, asked if she was going to be a whore like her sister, (gasps) and the last call that came on August 26th, 2009, said, I'm watching your sister's body rot. (gasps) Oh my God. That makes my stomach just drop. Mm -hmm. Oh my God. And it would be another year before he would strike again. Oh my God. Megan Waterman was born on January 18, 1988, to 20-year-old mother Lorraine Waterman and Greg Gove. Lorraine had recently moved out of her mother's house when she met Greg. Greg was the first boy to give Lorraine attention since she'd been on her own, and within a month, they were living together. Unfortunately, it wasn't happily ever after. Lorraine drank a lot, and the relationship soon turned violent on both sides. Oh, jeez. But a few months into the turmoil, Lorraine found out she was pregnant with their first child. She left Greg, but she was pregnant and came back before her son, Gregory, was born. She stayed for a while, but left again when she was eight months pregnant with Megan. Lorraine, on her own, quit her job and applied for welfare, securing an apartment for her and her soon-to-be two children. Wow. By herself? Yes. Wow. She wasn't on her own for long, though, (laughs) before Greg and his new girlfriend showed up at her doorstep and offered to help with the babies in exchange for shelter in her new digs, to which she agreed. Lorraine slept in her room with her son, and Greg and his girlfriend slept in the living room. And Megan made her debut in January. I, interesting. I mean, I guess you could get free child care. It was free child care, and she wasn't paying for the apartment. It was yeah. like Section 8 housing. So. Yeah. I guess it just takes a lot to have your ex-boyfriend mm, yeah. uh, living there with his new girlfriend. Yeah. But baby daddy. Yeah, so, that's true. You know, That's true. Good for the kids. Keeping the family close. Mm-hmm. There were three adults in the house, and apparently none of them were doing a good job caring for the children. Oh, I retract. <laughs> <laughs> you keep making a comment, though. I'm like, but they sucked at yep. that. <laughs> Megan's maternal grandmother, Muriel, got wind of the borderline neglect of her grandkids. She learned that Megan wouldn't be changed all day. Oh, jeez. Lorraine would hit Gregory, who would also eat cereal off the floor, mm. which... I'm guessing it's a dirty floor. I was was like, because my kids eat crap off the floor all the time. (laughs) Muriel dealt with it at first, but she finally applied for custody when she found out that Megan was hospitalized for respiratory distress, which she felt was due to Lorraine's lack of follow through in monitoring Megan after an abnormal blood test. Mm. Lorraine and Greg objected to the custody request at first, but they ended up giving in when they couldn't disprove the case against Mm -hmm. them. Mm -hmm. Megan and little Greg were raised by Grandma Muriel, who knew a thing or two about parenting. She raised six children of her own as a single mother in Portland, Maine. God bless her soul. Megan was a bit of a troublemaker, but any trouble she caused was quickly forgiven when she turned on the charm. Mm. And Muriel was her biggest cheerleader, always by her side to defend and downplay any misbehavior. She was more threatening than her brother, and the boys at school ran from her. (laughs) 
She first had the police called on her when she was in first grade. The police? (laughs) The police. She had climbed a bridge between the buildings at her school, 30 feet in the (gasps) air, climbed over the railing, and refused to come down. Oh my goodness. Megan did not care. She was defiant and carefree. She was the kid doing flips and cannonballs in the pool. One time when she was only 12, she was running around a pool and her bathing suit strap kept falling down. One of the pool goers joked that she might as well be naked, which is like a weird thing really for weird. a dude to say uh-huh. to a girl whose strap is falling down. Uh-huh. So she took off her swimsuit and jumped into the pool <laughs> naked. Oh my gosh. <laughs> like a spitfire. Yeah, I'll say. Megan couldn't be told no. And by the time she was a teenager, everyone assumed that Muriel was too afraid to rein Megan in because Megan would threaten her grandmother as well. Mm. Her social workers felt most of the toughness was a facade, but it didn't make it any less intimidating. Right. She got what she wanted and was rewarded for bad behavior. In second grade, Megan was diagnosed with ADHD and was transferred to a school for troubled kids after fifth grade where students continued to fear her. Mm. When Megan was finishing junior high, Muriel and Doug moved to Scarborough, Maine. The family lived in a trailer park, and Megan felt that people in town were snobs, but she was also jealous of them. Mm -hmm. She longed for their designer shoes and clothing, so she got the five-finger discount. Oh, geez. She was caught several times for shoplifting before being sent to a jail for young offenders. When Megan started school in Scarborough, she was labeled white trash, which that just makes me sad. Yeah. In middle school, she was placed in special ed, and in high school, she was placed in the alternative part of the school for troubled kids. She got kicked out of public school for good when she tried to dunk a student's head in the pool. She said she was just trying to get a reaction, but the school officials were especially concerned that she didn't appreciate how dangerous her actions were. I guess, yeah. Yeah. It it probably wasn't. That would be like saying that kids... um, well, I guess it still is dangerous, but like, what did they, what did they call those? The twisties, oh, like the, it's with your head in the toilet. What is that called? I know exactly. What you're, oh, that's what I thought you were going to say is that a she swirly, dumped, a swirly, a yeah. swirly. I thought that's what you were going to say, but that's, you know, that's significantly less water. So it is <laughs> maybe but probably that's why. equally dangerous. Cause like yeah. they can't breathe. Yeah. I guess either way you can't breathe. Anyways. Yeah. And I, it's I, probably I, also from her history. You know what I mean? Like yeah. if that were the only offense, maybe it wouldn't be a big deal, but I yeah. think it was the final like, straw. I think it's, it like, like, it's like a little dangerous, but like it's not like she was trying to kill the kid. Yeah. I don't know. Feels, well, yeah. feels a little dramatic, but I don't <laughs> know. Anyways. Megan dropped out of school when she was 17, and she continued to be well-known to the police. One officer, Doug Weed, tried to be the father figure she never had and would cut her a break when he could. I um, realize now that his name is Doug, D-O-U-G, mm-hmm. Weed. <laughs> I thought you Doug were weed. saying, yeah, he dug weed and like they hung out is what I, where I thought that was headed. But so no, I apologize. His name, his name is Doug. I apologize, Officer Weed. Space. Weed. That's quite a name for a police That's officer. what I'm saying. He dug weed. Right? That's <laughs> funny. Okay. Uh, he gained her trust and she confided in him that she was pregnant after a bathroom hookup. Megan was sent to a home for unwed mothers for her pregnancy, which all of these names makes me think it's like the 1900s. It it's yeah. not. They're like school for troubled kids and right. home for unwed mothers. She was terrified that they were going to take her baby away from her after Mm. she gave birth, history repeating itself like with her own mother. Mm -hmm. But when Lorraine found out Megan was pregnant, she inserted herself back into Megan's life. And Megan clung to Lorraine like a lifeline and asked if she could be released from the group home to Lorraine's care. Something tells me that isn't good. There are probably worse things. Yeah. It's okay. Okay. It's okay. Megan lived with Lorraine for a few weeks, but after the baby Liliana was born, Megan returned to Scarborough with her oh, okay. grandparents. Okay. Liliana's a beautiful name. Yeah, it is beautiful. Mm. That's our niece. Oh. 
Motherhood completely changed Megan. She was no longer angry and intimidating. She only wanted the absolute best for her Lily, and the $400 a month from the state wasn't allowing her to feed and clothe Lily the way that she wanted. Mm. So Megan turned to escorting. Oh, no. And it earned her the money she wanted quickly. Megan was able to move out of the trailer park at Crystal Springs and move into her own apartment in Portland. She told her grandparents that she was dancing at a strip club, and her grandparents believed her and watched Lily most nights. Megan would come home for a night or two to snuggle with Lily, and then she would return to her apartment where she hosted parties and sold drugs when she could. Megan's first escort gigs had been set up by her then-boyfriend Banks. When Banks began being abusive towards Megan, Banks's friend Vibe stepped in to protect her, and Megan fell hard for Vibe, her knight in shining armor. How can you not? I know. Deep in love. Deep in Mm -hmm. love. Megan left her apartment in Portland and split time between her grandparents' house and hotels in Portland where she spent her nights with Vibe. They lived out of hotel rooms for their whole relationship. Do you think that he legally changed his name? I think Vibe is probably like his like street name. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think he legally changed. I don't think. I don't think there's much he does legally, actually, if I were to guess. I don't think drug dealers um, like go to the courthouse to change their (laughs) to change their his name is probably like elmer elmer smith or something like not intimidating at all it's like i'm five it's v-y-b-e too oh damn mysterious wow vibe didn't hide his money and although he was polite and well-mannered megan's grandfather suspected he was a drug dealer Mm. (laughs) don't know what gave it away but yeah he wasn't wrong But Megan's grandfather knew Megan had a mind of her own, so she wouldn't care what he had to say about it anyways, so he just left it alone. Vibe helped Megan with her escorting gig and set up ads for her. On a good night, she could clear $1,500. I get... Were you just going to say that? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I get it. Like, I... I, That money is tempting. Mm -hmm. I get it. I mean... Especially if you're already on the slippery slope. Right. You know what I mean? Like for us to go and make right. change, make that change. But not, not even, so much. But. Not even just a slippery slope. It's like, oh, okay. Like um, you're living in a trailer park. There are probably other escorts Exa- in the park. That's what I mean. So exactly. you can either go make $1,500 a night or you can go work at Target and make $40 a night. Yeah, mm. exactly. Mm-mm. And it's not, I guess what I'm saying is it's not like so because of that, it's not so out of the norm. It's right. like other people are doing it. Right. You know, so yeah, it's around you. Yeah. Yeah. In the spring of 2009, Megan and Vibe took their first trip to Long Island to expand her network, but her desire to grow her territory came with risks. She had no good way to vet the Johns in the Long Island area. And she ended up agreeing on a price with an undercover cop. Oops. Oopsies, she was arrested, but she didn't serve any time. She also got robbed twice by two different Johns. It's really dangerous. It is. And I think even though that's like just a little sentence, she got robbed twice, that probably meant some violence and you know what I mean? Like it's, they're not just like, can I have, yeah, Yeah. not just can I have the money? Right. (laughs) Yeah. It wasn't long until Megan's family caught wind of her activities. Megan's mother, Lorraine, was asked about Megan's Craigslist ad in a supermarket checkout (gasps) line. Jeez. She ran home and scoured the ads until she found Megan's picture. Lorraine and the grandparents confronted her, but she told them all she was just dancing. She said, I swear, I swear to God. Megan swore to Lorraine she was just dancing, but she did open up a little bit about the situation and her relationship with Vibe. Mm. She said they had plans for the money and that they were going to buy a place and move in together. But Megan had a criminal record and Vibe had pending drug and weapons charges mm-hmm, mm-hmm. in Brooklyn. So they were bound to the hotel life for the time being. Plus, the cops were starting to follow Vibe around. You know, like, just 
yeah. inconveniences, really. Not a great time to buy a home. <laughs> no. Just, yeah. But, but you know, inconveniences. Mm-hmm. Uh, vibe wasn't a good influence in Megan's life, if mm. you can imagine. Not good vibes. No. No. Okay. Bad, bad, bad vibes. Yeah. Bad vibes. He dealt drugs out of their hotel room, mm-hmm. Megan helping him to deal and also using herself. Oh, no. She also helped hide his supply in her grandparents' trailer, of which they knew nothing oh. about. That made me think of any episode of cops where they find like a huge brick of coke and they're like i swear to god that's not mine i just let my friend borrow yeah. my car and smoke exactly. their crack in my car yeah. but like they really didn't know about yep. it that one i would believe yeah. yeah yeah her use of drugs didn't go well for her which is usually how it goes mm-hmm. on one occasion a buyer got ripped off by megan because she was using vibe came out and smashed her face into the side of the house vibe did vibe did oh because Jeez. she she yeah she like, it fucked up. him yeah. over yep. and yep. and fucked over his buyer. Megan's friend called an ambulance, but Megan got pissed when anyone tried to help. She said she knew what she was doing on her own. Another occasion, she was supposed to be selling vibes coke to someone, and instead she used the whole stash with the buyer. Oh boy, he hit her, and yeah. she basically said she deserved it. They would fight and make up, and they wanted to have a baby together. I, I believe in one episode you said that um, having a baby in a bad marriage was something akin to throwing a grenade. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's probably what we're about to hear. Yeah, and mm-hmm. I did say we've said this in the last episode. <laughs> nothing fixes a broken relationship quite like a crying newborn. Yeah. Yes. That'll do it. <laughs> yes. Despite the turbulence in their relationship, they wanted to make it work. In an effort to earn money for their dream life, Megan and Vibe planned another trip to Long Island. Megan said she just needed a little more money to get Lily into daycare and to get her place with Vibe so they could have a baby of their own. On June 5th, 2010, Megan took a bus from Portland to Long Island and checked into the Holiday Inn Express in Hop Hog. Once again, I have forgotten that this is the title of this case. They are on Long Island. <laughs> I'm like the main serial killer. <laughs> there was one in Connecticut. Well, no, Portland. It is talking about Portland, Maine. I know. But they travel, yes, yeah, to Long that was, Island. That was, the, that was the part that I... Miss. I got you. Mm-hmm. They're in Long Island now. I'm just very engrossed in the story. Okay, I'm glad. Around 8 p.m., Megan and Vibe left the hotel together, but Megan returned alone by 8.30. Megan made some calls in her room, including to her mother. Around midnight, she called her grandmother and asked if Lily was still up. Her grandma was like, um, no. no. <laughs> Megan said that Vibe was out with some friends and that she was planning on going to bed. She said she'd talk in the morning. Mm. After that, Megan, who went by Lexi as an escort, posted an ad on Craigslist that said, jump into a world like no other. Please, no block calls or text messages. Megan spoke to Vibe around 1.20 a.m., and it was around that time that Megan was last seen. Oh, no. She was contacted by a burner phone that had been activated that day. She left the hotel room around 1.30 a.m. and was never seen again. Oh, that burner phone. The burner phones. Megan's phone showed that she traveled to Massapequa Park at approximately 3.11 a.m. Vibe returned to the hotel the next morning, but Megan wasn't there. Megan's phone was going straight to voicemail, which never happened. Vibe was concerned enough to call Megan's grandmother, and he had this elaborate story ready. He said he and some buddies had gone out drinking and Megan had called his phone and said she was getting something to eat and would call when she got back. When Megan never called, Vibe said he figured she'd just crashed. At six in the morning, he came by her room. The concierge wouldn't let him in, but did open the door to see if Megan was sleeping. She wasn't there. So Vibe called the police to say that Megan had been wearing silver hoop earrings, a silver garnet ring, and a silver necklace. Mm. What he wouldn't do, due to his criminal record, was risk seeing the police in person. Mm. 
But the police would eventually raid Vibe and Megan's hotel room anyways, and they seized 13 grams of crack. Unfortunately, the raid meant that Vibe clammed up about anything and everything, including any information about Megan. And Megan's family was convinced that Vibe was involved somehow in human trafficking. Oh, geez. Well, I can see thinking something like that. But yeah. I mean, now we know that he probably had useless information anyway, right. really. Right. Um, but still, that's frustrating. Mm-hmm. And it would only be three months before another victim was claimed. Oh, gosh. Escalating. Amber Lynn Overstreet was born on February 10th, 1983, the second daughter to Al and Margaret or Margie Overstreet in Pennsylvania. Shortly after Amber was born, the family moved to North Carolina, where Amber grew up. Amber was the adorable baby who got whatever she wanted. Her sister, Kimberly, was six years older, and she would tell Amber that her legs looked like meaty drumsticks in a good way. (laughs) (laughs) Amber had a hard childhood due to two devastating incidences. When Amber was only five years old, a 26-year-old neighbor took Amber and Kim to play tennis at the park. But unfortunately, that's not what happened. Poor little Amber told investigators later that James grabbed her and (gasps) took her to the bushes. And after that incident, Amber's mom had walked into her room one day and found James in Amber's bed (gasps) on top of her. And the mother couldn't get him off of her (gasps) because he was too heavy. Margie called the police and James went to jail. Amber's sister, Kimberly, seemed to recall that her father shot James, but Amber's father said he only threatened him and that the police intervened before he did something he would have regretted. I'm sure he said it plenty. Oh, yeah, for sure. Can't blame him. Nope, nope. The Overstreets moved immediately, and the family fell apart. Oh. Amber blamed her mother for what happened to her, and her mother blamed herself as well, causing her to have a nervous breakdown. Oh, awful. Her father went to jail after too many DUIs, and Amber was scarred both emotionally and physically, unable to have children due to the rape. That's awful on so many levels. So many levels. Oh, my God. The family was scattered for a while, but they reconvened in a housing project called Nesbitt Courts. Amber did well in school, earning A's and B's, even though she cut class, and she was smart as a whip. When she had to get a note signed for cutting class, she would pretend to play schoolhouse, and she'd say, mm, yes, Mrs. Overstreet, can you please sign this note? Oh, um, kids, my God. take notes. That's brilliant. That's so smart. That is brilliant. I mean, the mom like probably should have read what she was signing, but like, if you think that your kid is just playing pretend, you're like, yeah, whatever, give that oh to me, I'll my sign God. it. Or it was a blank piece of paper, and... And she, yeah. Mm-hmm genius wow genius i i instead just forged sorry dad forged my uh, my dad's signature hey i i graduated from high school and college and i have a great job it's okay (laughs) we're sorry i used to forge my mom's signature with her permission though and i was actually pretty good at it but i I would just be like yeah i would just be like i forgot to have you sign this like can i sign your name and she'd be like sure Mm -hmm. but i was like a really good kid i got detention once for forgetting my spanish book when I probably could have just turned around and gotten it and brought it back. I yeah. did not deserve detention. No. That was the only time I ever got You're detention. You're not bitter about it at all. I will remember it forever. <laughs> also, I got one A- minus in college. The rest were straight A's, and I will never live that A- minus down. Humble brag. We fucking, hate you. Fucking history class. Hate you. Bullshit. <laughs> when Amber was just 13, her father found out he had tumors on his acoustic nerve when he went for a hearing aid, so he needed surgery. Oh. While he was recovering, her mother needed emergency surgery for a perforated ulcer. This poor family. Yes. They are getting the brunt of it. Yeah. 
Kim was studying sports medicine at the University of North Carolina and used what little knowledge she had gained her freshman and sophomore year to nurse her parents back to health since Amber was still so young. My goodness. Kim needed a way to make more money because waiting tables wasn't cutting it to pay for her schooling and for the mounting financial pressures with her parents' ailing health. One of Kim's classmates was running a business called Coed Confidential. Mm-hmm. The girls made their money by stripping and offering massages at private parties, and Kim found out the girls could make $800 a night. Kim started out working the phone lines, making timed calls to the girls to check on them. She ended up making hundreds of dollars a night just from doing that. You know what? That sounds great. Do yeah. that. Do just that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But there's better money to be had. Mm. And poor Kim has the burden of her entire family on her. And this isn't, at this point, the co-ed confidential is not quite escorting. Right. It's like basically like stripping for bachelor parties. Yeah. um, With a little extra if they want it. Right. She decided to pour herself into the work, started skipping classes, and it wasn't long before she started her own dancing career. Kim was making money hand over fist legally. Meanwhile, by age 16, Amber was offering sex for pay to the boys in Nesbitt Court, and soon enough, Amber joined Kim working for Coed Confidential. Amber was a people pleaser, and more than the money, she wanted to fit in. I saw your face, by the way, and that is young to be escorting, I guess. It also came out of nowhere. It I did. mean, it, it did and it didn't. Obviously, she had a, an extremely tough life. I Not, not that out of the blue, but we had no indication otherwise. Yes. So also, that, I yeah. think I think the statistics of like younger children with mm. sexual abuse, like oh, I'm sex sure. becomes meaningless yeah. to them because exactly. it was taken away from them yep. so young. Yep. Oh, God. Um, Amber was a people pleaser and more than the money she wanted to fit in. Mm-hmm. She would yes everyone to death and go above and beyond for the girls. Teresa, the owner, hosted parties at her house, and all the girls partied like it was a sorority, but things went south when Teresa began bringing in drugs. Xanax, ecstasy, coke, crack, Mm. heroin, meth. Kim experimented and clung to crack, Amber to heroin. Oh, God. Amber ended up getting fired after she got too many complaints for taking the John's money, doing any drugs they had, and then just leaving. Those are fair complaints. Yes. Yeah, that's you're not getting what you paid for. No. Heroin is a nasty drug, Mm -hmm. and Amber struggled with her addiction. Amber was able to get clean for a time, but she had several relapses dealing with the ups and downs of life. Mm -hmm. Amber married a man 10 years her senior for a short time, but then relapsed again and got a divorce. Goodness. She then got involved with a church and a group called Celebrate Recovery. She married Don Costello in 2007, whom she said was a gift from God. She wanted to start a family with Don, but the couple miscarried and then had adoption plans fall through. About a year into their marriage, a boy named Gabriel was placed with them. He was the son of another family at their church that couldn't care for the child. Amber was deliriously happy, but it didn't last. Oh my gosh. She ended up getting a divorce from Don 15 months after her marriage began. I'm really taking you on this roller coaster. Really? You're like, it's, oh, oh. It's like, and in the oh, roller coaster is like oh. getting lower and lower. Yeah. Like, it's just not, oh, it makes yeah. me so sad. Amber began singing her woes to her sister's friend, Dave. Kim and Dave were living in Long Island, and Amber would drunk dial Dave and tell him all about her mounting debts, the drugs, Mm -hmm. and the dangerous men she was around. Kim didn't want Amber to come to Long Island because she didn't want Dave's parents to think that she was up to no good being associated with Amber, but Dave wanted to help. Mm. Amber was living in Florida at the time, and Dave wanted to get Amber up to Long Island and into rehab. He sent Amber money for a plane ticket, and she cashed it in and got high. To his credit, he sent another that Amber actually used, and Dave picked her up at the airport to bring her home. 
and Dave, bless his heart, hustled and found her a spot in rehab. That's amazing. And it also, like, I've watched, I mean, I know Intervention has its critics, but I've right. watched many, many an Intervention episode, and they always say it takes, you have to keep trying. It's not going to happen on the first try. So no. yeah, I'm glad to hear he, he pushed for it. And you never know what's going to be the one that it gets that them sticks. clean forever, exactly. right? Mm-hmm. Amber was ready to get clean. Mm. In rehab, she met Bjorn Brodsky, a.k.a. Bear, whom she brought home with her to Dave and Kim's. The four were like a family, and they bonded together. That's when Amber and Kim started scheming. Amber and Kim told Dave and Bear that they wanted to list their escort services on Craigslist. The men weren't happy about it at first, but they got on board quickly. I think that money like really just draws people in. It's um, hard to turn that it, down. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Dave was hopeful that Amber could earn the money that she needed to get back on her feet. Dave didn't want to be a pimp per se and wanted nothing to do with the money. He just considered himself a bodyguard, a bodyguard who could protect the girls. Mm -hmm. Amber stuck to her co-ed confidential ways and told men she'd dance as freaky as they wanted, but no touching. And Bear and Dave set up a scheme to ensure that it would never get that far anyways. After Amber collected the John's cash, they would barge in as an angry husband screaming about shotguns. Uh, Most of the men ran off. There was one time the guy was super pissed and they said he looked like a linebacker and he said, I'm not leaving without my money. And the guys were like, okay, yeah, give (laughs) give him, give him his money back. Oh my God. Yeah. Amber or Carolina, as she called herself on Craigslist, was getting a reputation for stealing John's money. Yeah, I bet. Exactly. But the money still kept pouring in. Oh, my God. And with that money came the temptation. And Bear was the first to start using drugs again. Then Amber fell. Mm -hmm. Kim went down next. Dave was frustrated at the situation, Mm -hmm. so he decided to try drugs, too. Oh, if you can't beat him, join him, right? I know. But I do feel bad for him. He had been on methadone for years to manage chronic pain from a medical condition. So once he tried it, it was instant relief for him. Oh, jeez. And then I'm sure he just spent all that time chasing that high. The group was doing so much heroin in the house, they needed six to seven bundles for them, which cost between $250 and $500 a day. Wow. A day. Of each of those things costs that much? The six to seven bundles total. Oh. It's like 250 to 500. Wow. Amber abandoned her reservations and began having sex with her clients to bring in the extra cash they all needed. You know, $14,000 a month for heroin is not a cheap habit. Oh my God. I didn't even think about the actual, what that totals up to. A lot. Wow. A lot. On top of that, Dave sold everything in the house that wasn't nailed down. <sighs> Dave's house became a rundown heroin den and neighbors didn't hesitate to call the cops. Bear was getting paranoid for good reason. And unfortunately for him, in August 2010, he was searched by an undercover cop and got busted with coke and heroin. Amber bailed him out, but Bear had reached a breaking point. He knew he needed to get clean or he wouldn't be around to raise his son. Bear admitted himself to rehab and Amber once again felt abandoned by her family. Good for Bear, but yes, I see that. Yeah. On September 1st, 2010, Amber had been contacted by a burner cell phone around 1130 at night and then again at 12.05 a.m. the next day. According to witnesses, it was around that time that a John showed up to Amber's house. Amber took the John's money and then the scam unfolded and the John ran away while Amber kept the cash. The John was described as a large white male, approximately six foot four to six foot six, mid forties with dark bushy hair, big oval style, 1970s type glasses, and was described as ogre-like. 
a witness noticed a first generation Chevrolet avalanche in the driveway. I'm, I, uh, well, as usual, I will at some point let you tell me all of this, uh, yes, but I, I will tell you, I am fascinated that. So obviously this has been consistent with the other uh, murders that mm-hmm. we've heard about. Um, I, I guess didn't say they were murdered. I, say, they I guess disappeared. they're technically the disappearances at this point, mm-hmm. but that they all, the burner phone, they were all listing themselves on right. Craigslist and then they would have the interaction yes. without their pimp there. And mm-hmm. this is the only case where we know that like it was disrupted. The plan was disrupted. Right. So, and now we have a description of a person. Mm-hmm. So I'm just recapping, but thank you for, that was a very good recap. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Okay. Now tell me what they did with this information. Okay. Following the blowout with the fake boyfriend, the John said he was just a friend and that he'd give her a call at approximately 1:18 AM. Amber got a text from the John that said that was not nice to do. I, and he, this is just a typo, but I credit for next time. Mm-hmm. The next day, Dave and Amber went to the city to get heroin, and Amber had an early 8 a.m. call. I can't imagine just like I was gonna getting say. up, have a cup of coffee, have Mm-mm. sex. No, thank you. <laughs> not, not for me. No. <laughs> Around 4 or 5 p.m., Amber posted an ad on Craigslist and got a few hits. She was on and off the phone for a while with the same guy. Amber was contacted again by the John from the night before, who wanted to meet up with her, but didn't want to go to her house because of the boyfriend. Uh-huh. Amber had several communications with this John around 10.30 and 11. Around 11.15, Amber walked out of her house, leaving her cell phone behind, and no. she was never seen alive no, again. No, 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 I knew you were going to say it. Mm-hmm. <sighs> Eight months later, another disappearance. Oh, my God. Shannon Maria Gilbert was born on October 24th, 1986, the oldest of three girls born to Mary Gilbert. Mary left her husband and the girl's father when Shannon was only five, telling them it was due to heroin use. Mary was determined to raise her girls on her own without the help of family, friends, or the state. She worked as a manager at Sears and Dunkin' Donuts, as an assistant teacher, a warehouse worker, and a Walmart associate. Not all at the same time. No, I don't think so. Okay. No, that's, that's a lot of jobs. Mm-hmm. That's a lot The of first jobs. couple I thought maybe were at the same time, but... Yeah, possibly, yeah. but no, I don't think wow. all at once. It seems like the girls had a good home life with Mary, who worked so hard for them, until she met a man named David, who fathered the fourth girl in Shannon's family. David and Mary would have violent fights with plates being thrown against the wall while the girls hid under the kitchen table. That's traumatic. Mary's mother found out and reported Mary and David. David went to jail, and Mary's four daughters went into foster care for close to two years. Oh, my God. Do you know if they went together, if they were separated? I'm not sure. No. It's hard. Once the family was reunited, Mary moved the girls to Ellenville, New York, which was basically a village of transients, relatives of the inmates in the local state prison who would rent for a while and then leave again. Yikes. Mary said the town of Ellenville had more rumors than people, <laughs> which when I first wrote that, I had a typo and I was like, Mary said the town of Ellenville had more tumors than people. I was like, that can't be right. <laughs> I'm like, a- were they living in that place in Texas where <laughs> yeah. they're like testing bombs? Yeah, <laughs> yeah that, would, that would check out. No, mm-mm. But I am impressed that Mary got the kids back. Mm-hmm. Like sometimes it can be it can be really oh, yeah. hard to get children back after like DCF gets involved. Yeah. After moving to Ellenville when Shannon was about seven, she went back into the foster care system. But just her, not her sisters. We why? Shannon would see her sisters in the same school, but she just didn't live with them. What? So she was diagnosed with um, diagnosis being bipolar, and Mary did try to keep her home even when Shannon didn't want to take her meds because of the way they made her feel, Mm -hmm. but she would blow up and then Shannon would call the state to place her herself. Oh, or so Mary says. 
weird. Yeah. And there were times during foster care that Shannon would run away to her family, but then she wouldn't stay long and she would go back to the foster family. So I'm not sure exactly how that situation worked out. It sounds like it might've somewhere somewhere in in the middle. So maybe both of them a little bit. So it sounds like Shannon was just a tough kid with bipolar disorder and, and Mary was doing the best she could, but they just needed that extra space space for her to run away to basically. Yep. That's what Mary said anyways. Mm -hmm. Shannon's sister said that Shannon was essentially kicked out when she was seven because she didn't get along with Mary's new boyfriend. Mm. Now, I really hope that's not the case. I also hope not. But that disagreement spared Shannon the physical abuse the boyfriend would later inflict on the family. Oh my God. These people just have unfortunate event after unfortunate event. And that's why I really wanted to like, so this, all this information is from the book. Mm Mm-hmm. And I just think it's so good to talk about their whole life. There were some pros, a lot of cons. They had a lot of struggles. They had a lot of triumphs, like up and down roller coaster their whole life. They had a whole life before. Yes, they did. And they had lives. Most of them had children. Just so sad. In her eighth grade year, Shannon returned home with the state on board. But Shannon tried to play peacemaker between Mary's boyfriend and her sisters, unaware of the abuse that they had been suffering. Mm -hmm. The sisters were all envious of Shannon, but she felt like they'd all grown apart. Right. apart. So they were right. like both envious of each other, right. not knowing like the truth behind each other's stories. Yep. After her eighth grade year, Shannon found a new foster pl- placement in New Paltz. Her foster mother encouraged her and Shannon worked hard and graduated a year early. Wow. She was doing so well that even her mother was jealous of her, which you hate to hear that. Yeah. So Mary would insert herself into Shannon's life, and it always ended with Shannon crying, asking her mother why she didn't want to raise her. Oh, my God. That makes it breaks me your like, heart. It gives me a lump in my throat. I know. After graduation, Shannon moved away from Ellenville, staying with her grandmother for a while before she left for being reprimanded for staying out too late, which, I mean, of all the things. Yeah, so right. Come on. Shannon wanted to move to New York City and audition for singing roles. And Shannon made it happen, sort of. She was working as a receptionist when she saw an ad for world-class party girls, an escort service. No. She answered the ad and was hired on the spot. So she did get to visit the city often. Shannon would go into the city during the day to audition to sing professionally. She wanted to be famous, so escorting gave her some of the attention and adoration she desired. Sure. World-class party girls was an agency setup where drivers would take the girls to their calls. Shannon bonded with her driver, Alex, and the two began hooking up. Oh. When Alex was her driver, they would hook up between Shannon's calls, and when he wasn't her driver, they would meet in the morning at a hotel. Goodness. In early 2008, Shannon moved to Jersey to be closer to Alex and work, and her and Alex moved into an apartment in Jersey City. Shannon was making great money and was sharing the wealth with her family. The gifts she bought and the money she spent on her mom and sisters brought the family closer together. Shannon said she was only going to escort until she was done with school. No one else in her family tried to talk her out of it because they were all getting oh, spoiled sure. too. Yeah. Which is sad that like I, the money is what's bringing them back together. It's like, come on. I know. But that's another common thread too. Mm-hmm. They're always like just one more month. Like yes, I'm going to give what I'm it saying. up. Right. Though that probably happens all the time. And then yeah. people like literally never give it up because the money is just I was going to say, because you're going likely from $1,500 right. a day to like you said, $40 a day. I mean, yeah. come on. That's, it's yeah. tough. That's a tough jump. But in June of 2009, Shannon was arrested and charged with promoting prostitution, conspiracy, and manufacturing, distributing, or dispensing a controlled dangerous substance. 
She was released on a summons, and less than a week later, the owner of World Class Party Girls was taken down by authorities. Police had gotten a tip about the business, put in undercover officers, and learned that they offered clients cocaine and charged up to $3,500 an hour. (laughs) The prosecutor said that the escort service took in about $250,000 per month before it was shut down. I'm sure all of it was known by the IRS, too. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I'm sure none of it was cash. Yeah, Uh the owner ended up pleading guilty a year later to laundering over $3 million Mm -hmm. annually that Mm -hmm. he made off of prostitution and drugs. And the only thing in life that's certain is death and taxes. There you go. Mm -hmm. The IRS... The IRS and the insurance takes down, companies. <laughs> yes, the IRS and insurance companies take down so many criminals. Yep. It's, yeah, hey, it's all about motivation, right? <clears throat> That's right, yeah. <laughs> so yeah, they're they're out. And just like that, Shannon was unemployed. Mm. The money dried up. She tried her hand at waitressing, but the money couldn't compare. Oh, not even close. Yeah. Nope. So she made her way to Craigslist. Ugh. Alex and Shannon's relationship became strained, most discussions always coming back to money and their future. They moved in with Alex's father to save money. One morning when Shannon got home from work drunk at 6 a.m., she picked a fight with Alex. They argued and Alex snapped, punching Shannon in the jaw, fracturing it. (gasps) Oof. She ended up needing a plate grafted onto her jawbone to fix it, which was the quicker fix than having her jaw wired shut. Holy crap. Also not good for business. No, exactly. I'm so so sorry. I'm so sorry. I know. Well, it's true. It literally was like she needed to get back to work. So she chose the quicker Mm -hmm. fix. Mm Mm-hmm. Shannon met a new driver through an agency called Fallen Angels, which that just sounds like sad, sad or like sketchy. Yeah, I don't like it. Yeah. Michael was a freelancer at the time and teamed up with Shannon after she got jerked around by the company on her first day, being sent on a wild goose chase to bogus calls. Shannon went by Angelina and charged $200 an hour, making seven to eight calls on a good night. Her and Michael worked well as a team, although Shannon could be a little erratic and unpredictable. Mm. On May 1st, 2010, in the early morning hours, Shannon and Michael headed to Long Island for a call. Shannon was with a John for over two hours. Just before 5 a.m., the John tapped on Michael's window and said he couldn't get Shannon to leave. Michael was confused and went inside. Shannon said that Michael and the John were trying to kill her. Michael thought she was joking, but the John put his arms around her from behind and she started yelling. What? And the John was like, um, fuck this and yeah, left Shannon bye. with Michael. Yeah. Michael asked Shannon if she wanted to go home and she said she'd find her own way home and crawled behind a couch. Uh, Michael said it reminded him of a scene from Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. Yes. And he thought that she was faking it. Yeah. Then he heard her talking on the phone and it sounded like she had called 911, which is not something an escort would usually do. So Michael left. Sitting in his car, he saw the John upstairs, and he said that Shannon was still inside. So the John went downstairs and basically scared her or chased her out of his house. Yeah. Shannon bust out the front door and started running up the road into the darkness. What? What kind of drugs did she take? I do not know. Michael was relieved. She was finally ready to go home and turned his car around to follow her. Mm-hmm. Michael lost her, then spotted her, only to lose her again. Yeah. He called her cell over and over, but to no avail. Michael said, fuck this, and drove home. Shannon was never seen alive again. Oh, my God. 
but the investigation into her disappearance would lead to a shocking discovery that we're going to talk all about on the next episode. Oh, I know. You know, I <laughs> you knew, saw the pages dwindling, I knew, right? And, but I couldn't quite tell how many mm-hmm. pages were left, and I also didn't expect this one's different. That last one was different than the other ones. Like it no, is. no burner phone that John doesn't seem to like on the surface doesn't seem to be concerning like this is just a very strange thing so i actually thought it was going to go the other way that this was like an anomaly and not helpful so it's well we're (sighs) gonna we're gonna talk more about whether whether it is related or maybe not but it does the case has an impact on on the overall structure of the case if you will (laughs) the overarching theme if you will okay we're gonna talk all about it next episode fantastic and as marina always reminds you guys like i have to wait too that's why i'm this is not fake i actually do have to wait and it's very frustrating and laura has actually given me a deadline to make sure that she gets to hear the conclusion of this episode before she has baby grim um yes because i will (laughs) kill you i will just be in labor and be like but tell me part two and i said that i'll just record it and she can listen to it like a gremlin (laughs) like the Grimlin that she is. <laughs> if you're enjoying listening to Grim, please read and follow us wherever you listen to podcasts to make sure you don't miss any episodes. If you listen to us on Apple Podcasts, make our day by leaving us a written review. We still check obsessively and we love when we see them. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can find our page on Facebook by searching Grim colon a true crime podcast. If you want to subscribe to our Patreon, you can go to Patreon and search Grim a true crime podcast. This is also a reminder that if you look on our link tree, we do have some pretty cool merch. Oh, and yeah. Yeah. You guys should check that out too. Follow us on Instagram at Grim Crime Podcast for information on future episodes and case photos. If you want to send us a case suggestion, which people do, and it's so great, or just say hi, you can email us at grimcrimepodcast at gmail.com. Listen, learn, and stay alive until next time, because the future is grim. Grim.